Jessica heard the terrifying scream emanating from the playroom. Frantically rushing out of the bathroom, she found her eldest son, Wesley, then aged four, seated atop his little brother, pounding away at him. And as she forcefully yanked Wesley off his brother, she pled with him, Wesley, you must love your brother. But he makes me so mad, I can't love him. He replied through angry tears. Elise Fitzpatrick recounts the tale in her book, Give Them Grace, and she continues, As a parent, we're sure you can easily imagine a situation like that one. Now, if you were Wesley's dad or mom or church member who four years earlier had taken a vow to assist his father and mother in the Christian nurture of Wesley, how would you have answered his question? Or to put a finer point on it, how do you think a Christian parent should respond to a child who is angry, disobedient, and at that point, hopeless? And should a Christian's response differ significantly from what one might hear a loving Mormon mom or a conscientious Jewish father say? Sure, all parents would undoubtedly have restrained their son, and told him that beating up his little brother is inappropriate behavior. But but then what? What would come next? Is there something that would make a Christian's response distinctly Christian? She says, when we were raising our daughter, I would have answered Wesley's, I can't love my brother in this way. I would have said, oh, yes, you can, and you will. God says that you must love your brother, and you better start, or else. Would your answer have been different from mine, she asks? If so, in what way? And how would you know if your reply was a distinctively Christian one? After all, she writes, it's obvious that just because we're Christian parents, it doesn't necessarily follow that our parenting is essentially Christian Frequently, she writes, it's something else entirely. A lot of you out there are parents. Some of you are grandparents. Some of you one day will be parents. And most of you have taken a vow to help support our parents in helping their children see Jesus. So there's a message, I think, for every one of us in this passage Uh, I've been at this church for 23 years now, starting as a seminary intern in the fall of 1994. And there are people who have graduated from college who I was seated right in your pew uh, when I was new here saying, we will, when that baptismal vow, that question was asked of the congregation. And I've seen that little infant head off to college. I've seen that little infant... Uh, go through breakups. I've seen that little infant uh, get her heart broken. I've seen that little infant start a new career. 
And some of those little infants are now uh, very much walking with God. They believe Jesus is their Savior. They have a freedom and a confidence that comes when you know that you have a Father in heaven and when you know that Jesus has saved you fully, finally, and forever, and the monkey is off your back, and you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You can just step out in faith to actually love other people and follow God's calling wherever that takes. Others of those little babies... Uh, are not really interested in God and aren't really in a church today. And that's true in churches uh, and in spiritual communities around the world. We're not alone. Dan Allender says that of children raised in believing Christian homes, his estimate is that 17% of them as adults are in churches that actually believe the gospel as adults and that 83% of them have been swept away to use the language that Jesus uses in his Sermon on the Mount when he compares those who build their house on the rock with those who build their house, that is their family, on the sand. And the wind comes and the waves come and those built on the sand, their, their, their families are washed away. Those built on the rock, he says, will stand. So much work, so much effort, so much heartache to raise a family only to watch as ones you loved. Spiritually, they're swept away. And The Bible says a lot about parenting. And I am not up here today to get into all of the details and all of the technicalities and to wade into all the various controversies and different perspectives over whether you should feed your child on demand or whether you should have scheduled feedings or whether you should, uh, you know, not spare the rod or whether the timeout is an acceptable rod. I'm I'm not an expert in all of that. And if you're a parent, you're going to be intensely motivated to research all different perspectives on that and come to your own conclusions, and nobody should be judging anybody about all of that. What I'm hoping will happen today is that God will give you the big picture paradigm for what it means to parent a child in Christ, what resources you have to draw upon. So we're going to look at a passage in Deuteronomy, a thousand years before Christ, but we're going to look at it in the context of what we now know in Christ. And we're going to see if we can ask those most important questions that parents need answers to. What has the power to change Wesley's heart when he's pounding away at his brother and saying, I cannot love my brother. It's too hard. What can change him? What has that power? And how is it that that captures his heart? And how is it actually even possible? We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. In your pew Bible, if you want to look there, we're going to start on page 248. Uh, this context is God has just given the Ten Commandments to Israel saying, I'm the Lord your God. I rescued you. I brought you out of Egypt. And here are ten big principles that I want you to take to heart so that you know how to live in response to my gift to you of saving you. So that you know what it looks like to love me and to love other people on which Jesus says hangs the whole of the law. He's just given the law. And then he begins to talk about things like parenting. Deuteronomy 6, we're going to read 4 through 12 and then verses 20 to 23 if you want to follow along with me as I read. This is 
the word of the Lord God of Abraham. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel Adonai Lalhanu Adonai Echad. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you didn't provide, wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then beginning in verse 20, in the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of these stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and the whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. This is God's word. What has the power to change a child's heart. How does it happen? How is it possible? First question, what has the power to change a child's heart? Is there a resource that can actually accomplish that kind of feat? Because there are certain things you can do externally that can get an external response, behavior modification, but what can actually change a child on the inside to make the child want to honor God? to make the child actually respond with real love for God and real love for neighbor and real love for Wesley's little brother who was probably annoying and did something that in Wesley's mind brought about the just response of pounding him with his fist. To see a hard, stubborn heart melt and become willing, to see ice thaw and become a stream of water, what has that power? And the answer shouldn't surprise us because uh, studies show that the vast majority of children are actually human beings. In fact, all of them. And there's only one thing that can change the human heart. It's the same thing that has the power to change a child's heart. Yes, there are rules. God had just given the Israelites the Ten Commandments. He was beginning to give them the case law. Uh, He's certainly instructing them how to love God uh, with all their heart and love their neighbor as themselves. He gives commandments to, to, to structure that. Uh, and, and, and 
He says, I want these commandments on your hearts. He wants you and your children to be memorizing his instruction, to be internalizing it, taking it in, because it's the cheerful giver that willingly gives that God welcomes and delights in, not the one who does it grudgingly. Even St. Paul says none of you should give under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. He wants it flowing from the inside out, and the rules themselves can't do that. He wants something that will bring them inside into our hearts. And yet Romans 8, Paul says that this law, these commandments were powerless to do this because he says they were weakened by the flesh, by the sinful nature, and by our own religious compulsion to try to relate to God according to our performance, what he calls in Romans the flesh. And so even as he's giving us these rules, these instructions, and God doesn't give us ten suggestions, he gives us commandments, things that you dare not violate because they're the law of the Lord God. But even as he gives us these rules, he points us to the power to actually change the heart, the power that when brought together with them can actually move us to real heart repentance and transformation. And that power is the gospel. Did you notice how Moses, after he gives these instructions, he immediately changes the subject. He says, yes, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, the totality of your being in devotion to the Lord your God, blood-bought loyalty, willing sacrifice for him. And then he turns around and says, what? He gives them the power in verse 10 through 12 by stressing that their relationship with God is not based on the rules, that he has given you grace. He points them to the gospel his unconditional love, his claiming you as his people. He says, I'm your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm giving you all of these promises. I'm blessing you with the land. The way he keeps stressing again and again, I'm giving you houses and you didn't build them. It wasn't your performance. You're not in relationship with me because of anything you've done. It's because of my mercy, because I have chosen you and loved you, not because you were good, but despite the fact that you weren't good. I loved you to make you good. You didn't build these houses. You didn't plant these fields. You didn't build these towns and cities. It's all of grace. It's all by my gospel. It's all because of what I've done for you. The good news of salvation, being rescued from bondage, from slavery, saying you were in bondage, and I delivered you out of the house of bondage. I mean, you know this from the world of romance. Saying, love me, doesn't move anybody to love you. But when somebody comes and says, I love you, it can move your heart and melt your heart to actually be willing to respond in kind with love. And God is saying here, I loved you first. And what I'm asking from you is that you would understand that and let that sink in deeply You didn't build this. I gave it to you because I'm your father. I'm wild about you. I love you. I chose you. I delight in you. I treasure you. I'm your God. You're my people. We belong together. That's the only thing that can actually have the power to change us. And then he says that I want you to tell your kids the story of salvation. 
Tell your kids. It's what Moses says to do whenever your kids begin to question a rule. It's parenting 101. He says in verse 20 to 23, he says, In the future, when your son asks, why do I have to do this? He says, then don't say, because God commands it. When you say, you need to love your brother, why do I have to do that? Then he says, tell him the story. Tell him the story of how we were in slavery. We were in bondage. We were lost. And the Lord took pity upon us. He noticed us. He had compassion on us. And he came and he rescued us. His mighty works and great power, his great salvation came and rescued us from slavery and set us free. We were outside. And the Lord brought us in, ultimately pointing to what Jesus would do as as the true Moses, the true mediator between God and man on the cross, dying and shouldering our sin. Dad, I don't want to do this. Why do I have to do this? Let me tell you about the gospel. And Moses specifically says that whenever your son or daughter asks you why, you're supposed to tell the story of God's grace. Now, for some of you who have been parents or been around parents, um, you know, does your child question an instruction once every single year? Because if so, then God through Moses is telling you, you have to sit down and have a conversation about the gospel with your child once every single year. You have to have the talk about Jesus. And if your child says, why? Once every single month. Then every month you've got to sit down and have a conversation and tell the story about how we were slaves and the Lord rescued us. And so we belong to him now. Because he loves us. Because it's the gospel that's the power. He's saying, parents, not just parents, you in community groups, you in relationship, you who took that vow, who entered into covenant with these parents to support them. Every time, why? Let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about the grace of our Father who delights in us and makes us his people. For some of you, this means... 37 times every day, you're going to have to talk about the gospel with your child. What, Greg? 37 times a day? That means we're going to be talking about Jesus constantly. Yes. That's the idea. That's how children grow up to know Jesus. It's the only thing that has the power to motivate and enable. You don't have to wait for Paul in the, in the epistle of Romans in the first century to tell you Moses told you 1,200 years earlier or 1,400 years earlier, however you want to date it. I don't know. They're scholars. I'm not getting into it. I haven't even researched it in 20 years. But Paul says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, that is according to the way of religion and rules, but we live according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Tell your children about me about how I rescued you. Then the wind and the waves come and your house will stand. It's the power to change a child's 
heart. And it's so radically different from what we hear everywhere else. Tim Kimmel's chapter, uh, The Freedom to Make Mistakes, from his book, Grace-Based Parenting, he contrasts the way most churched parents raise their children from the very rare jewel of a family that gets the gospel and that understands the real power. He says, legalistic parents maintain a relationship with God through obedience to a standard. The goal of this, uh, uh, the goal of this when it comes to their children is to keep sin from getting into their home. The idea is sin is outside, out there, and, and we need to keep ourselves holy in here so sin can't creep in. So they do their best, he writes, to create an environment that controls as many of the avenues as possible that sin might use to work its way into the inner sanctum. It's as though the power to sin or not to sin was somehow connected to their personal willpower and resolve. He writes, these families are preoccupied with keeping sin out by putting up a fence between them and the world. He continues, the difference with grace-based families is that they don't bother spending so much time putting up fences because they know full well that sin is already present and accounted for inside their family, in mom, in dad, in daughter, in son. It's already there. You're not trying to keep it out. It's already in, as far in as you can get. To these types of parents, sin is not an action or an object that penetrates their defenses. It is a pre-existing condition that permeates our being. The graceless home requires kids to, to stay good and gets angry and punishes them when they are bad. The grace-based home assumes kids will struggle with sin and helps them learn how to tap into God's grace-given power to help them get stronger. He writes, children in a grace-based family are accepted as sinners. Is your family a safe place to be a sinner? Because if it's not, you are not building your house on rock. You are building it on the sand of religion. But to assume that they're going to struggle with sin, assume that they're broken and damaged, just like the rest of us, just like Pastor Greg, and to give them the gospel, even as you discipline, even as you structure to help them learn to believe the good news and to help get that into their heart. What do we often hear? Very often we hear, a f- I mean, it's even in our, our, our Christmas songs. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows when you're sleeping. Really creepy. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so you better be good, for goodness sake. Does that sound like your parenting? Does that sound like the parenting that you were raised in? Friends, it's the opposite of Christianity because when Jesus comes to town, he looks out for the naughty kids and he gives them candy and presents and gifts. It's when we were sinners that Christ died for us. It's his unconditional acceptance of the rebellious child, the rebellious pastor, the person who's broken, the person who doesn't get it. That's the power of God. It's the power of the grace of Jesus. And it's the only reason I'm up here is because I'm naughty and Jesus 
came and gave me grace. And he keeps doing it again and again. I think we've got a, a, a slide this morning that shows kind of what legalistic parenting primarily looks like. Do we have that slide by any chance? Um, and when that is the Christianity you were raised with, that Jesus is happy when you obey, and he's mad at you and sad with you when you disobey. That's not Christianity, friends. That's the opposite. Because God says that he gives good gifts. He is rich and merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's Christianity. Thank you. That's good. Build your family, friends, on the rock of the gospel, the grace of Jesus. It's the only thing with the power to change the heart of a child. Now, how do children learn this? We've talked about this before. They learn it through gospel culture. Notice how pervasive this is in the instruction Moses gives. He says, I want you to talk about me uh, and love me with the totality of your being, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's everything. That is a totalizing vision of Christianity, a totalizing vision of a relationship with God, that it's not just something that happens on Sunday. It's something that happens through the week, every day as you live your life in response to the grace of God. And he says, I want the Word of God to shape your environment. In verse 8 and verse 9, he says, I want you putting my Word on your walls, on your dashboard, on your gates, everywhere. And he says, I want you to talk about it constantly, 24-7. You know, when you're, he says, I want you to talk about me when you're in bed and also when you're awake, when you're at home and when you're not at home. Those are the times I want you to talk about me. Are you processing all of life with your kids in light of his word? And yet there's so much more than that. Because he then says, then I want you, every time your kid questions it, I want you to sit down and talk about the gospel. It's a gospel culture. You know, what drives us, it's what can shape us, is immersion in that gospel culture. As every time they ask why, and God designed them to ask why, you sit down and you tell them the story of the grace of Jesus that you've received. It's the only thing with the power. Luther said, preach the gospel to yourself every day, and the same is true for your children, to train them to preach the gospel to themselves every single day. When that's your culture, your children will learn gospel culture the same way they learn to speak English, by being immersed in it. They will pick it up as God, by his Spirit, chooses to move. And there's more than that, because it's not just you and your family. There's this covenantal community of Israel, the church in the New Testament, uh, that vow that we all took. Um, you know, uh, uh, studies show that, that the most powerful way to change the heart of a young person is, is not by their programming, but by having them have five interactions with a Christian adult every week. It's the five-to-one rule. We used to say it was the one-to-five rule. Youth group has to have one volunteer for every five kids. Now we flip it. Now your kids need five Christian adults having meaningful interaction with them every day. That's the current research, best practices, the most, statistically the most likely way for your children to grow up as believing adults with the confidence of the gospel is by interacting with other Christians who aren't just their mom and their dad. It's that vow we take. Um, 
are we creating that culture? You know, it, it means you constantly have opportunity to bring the gospel to bear. Every time you get into a fight with your spouse, you can talk about the gospel. You can forgive. And your children will pick it up. They will learn. It's why really every sermon in this church is about parenting. Because every sermon is about what every passage of the Bible is about, which is the grace of God, the gospel of God, to call us out as his people and teach us to walk with him. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this. She says, Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it, she writes. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and about what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. See, other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. But the Bible... While it does have some heroes in it, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. Friends, teach your children that they're treasured. Immerse them in a gospel culture. I mean, how do you develop in your kids a deep sense of emotional and spiritual security in an age of Facebook? You know, you take your daughter out to buy her a new outfit, and then she's snapping a selfie in her new outfit and posting that on social media. And then what does she do? She does the same thing that you would do. She watches her phone to see who likes it, who approves of her, how many likes she gets, what's she learning at that moment, what's she being discipled in. She's being taught that her value as a woman is contingent on what other people think of her physical beauty. And she's learning it again and again and that she needs approval from outside of herself, what other people think of her. And she's putting herself out there. She's putting her self-esteem on display for everyone to vote on. And don't think she's not learning. And when your daughter gets fewer likes than someone else's daughter in her new outfit, do you think she's going to notice that? Every day for weeks and then for months, and then for years, being immersed in a Facebook culture of seeking approval and seeking to get liked for her outsides. And then comes the self-medicating. Then comes the eating disorders, the substance abuse, the risky behaviors, all in a quest to find someone who will accept her, who will approve of her, validate her, and love her as she looks at other people's perfect posts, always comparing her insides to their outsides. What can combat that, friends? What has the power to stand up to the like culture of Facebook for your daughter? Friends, tell her from the day of her birth that there is only one set of eyes whose approval she needs. Tell her she has a father in heaven, a father who delights in her. Tell her that she is the apple of his eye, his treasure and desire. Tell her that he is wild about her, that he finds her pleasing, not because she looks perfect or behaves perfect, but because she's clothed in the beauty of Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of God's Son, that that he doesn't love her because she's beautiful. He loves her to make her beautiful. 
Tell it to her early, every single day. Let the gospel be the balm that you apply to every wound. Gospel, the power to face every challenge. The gospel that she has, grace in Jesus, to be the solace for her every failure. The gospel to be the ultimate victory that puts out, that puts every other victory into context. Let the gospel develop in her a deep security, a peace, a confidence. The confidence that comes when a child knows that they're loved, that they're secure, that she's treasured. Tell her about the prince who left his far-off country to come and rescue his princess. And that Jesus is that prince and that she is that princess. Dads, are you listening? You cannot delegate this responsibility. It's all of our jobs. She needs to hear it from you constantly. Tell her she doesn't need a boy to tell her that she's desirable. You don't need a boy to tell you you're a treasure. You have Jesus and you are treasured and nothing any boy will say will be able to embellish the reality of the righteousness of Jesus clothing you and giving you power from on high. That's the gospel's power to save. Tell her it's only God's like that matters. And he's already liked her completely and constantly. Friends, it's a gospel culture. And as parents, that means you've got to believe the gospel for yourself. Moses says that the Lord is your God that's possessive. That he's brought you in who were excluded. That he has redeemed you and set you free from slavery and made you his very own There's nothing like parenting or even being around children to show you your own failure, to show you the worst of yourself. Some of you talk about how how being parents has brought out the best in you as you realize the Father heart of God and you realize the warmth and love that God must have for you and, and you feel a protection and a care that you didn't feel before. But you also tell me it also brings out the worst in you as you become that controlling monster that was always down there somewhere and you didn't know it was there and you realize that you actually do sound just like your mother even though your spouse can never tell you that. Dave Harvey says, I thought parenting was going to portray my strengths. I never realized God ordained it to show me my weaknesses. We're just big sinners helping little sinners see Jesus. No one needs the gospel like a parent. No one needs grace like a mom or a dad. Friends, look at Jesus. He knows when you've been sleeping and he knows when you awake and he knows when you've been bad or good and he comes to you with presence and love and delight and praise because he is your savior and there is no other. Live loved. Drink of the gospel. Believe it for yourself. You've been running around thinking that there's grace for everyone but you. But the Bible is saying that Jesus has named you as a recipient of his love. He's your Lord, the God who rescued you two and set you free and and put the performance treadmill away so that you can live as one who is treasured and treasured completely. Back to little Wesley. I can't save my brother. I can't love my brother. Oh, yes, you can, and you will. The Bible says you have to, so you can. At least Fitzpatrick writes, No, the Christian response to a statement, I can't love my brother, is something more like this. Exactly, Wesley. I'm so glad to hear you say that, because it shows me that God is actually working in you. 
It's true, God commands you to love your brother. Wesley, but you can't. That's the bad news, but that's not all the news there is. The rest of the news is so exciting. You can't love your brother like God is asking you to, so you need a rescuer to help you. And the really great news is that God has already sent one. His name is Jesus. Jesus has perfectly loved you, Wesley, loved you and loved his brothers for you, fulfilling the law to love in your place. Wesley, believe in Jesus. He doesn't punish you the way that you were punishing your little brother. Instead of punishing you, Jesus took all the punishment that you deserve for what you did, and he took it to the cross, and he was punished in your place. He took your spanking for you. He knows how angry you are, Wesley. He knows there are times when you're hateful and selfish with your brother, but he loves you in spite of your sin. And because of this, Wesley, because of the way you've been lavishly loved, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to grow to love your brother more and more. Because Jesus alone, because of what he's already done for you, Wesley, you can learn how to love if you believe that he'll be that loving with you even when you beat up your little brother. You can't do it on your own, Wesley. She writes, after sharing soul-comforting words like those, Jessica continued with a time of discipline and prayer for Wesley that God would grant him faith to believe that the rescuer he needed actually loved him and would forgive him, and would help him love others too. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I give you thanks that you have the power to change our hearts, and that you have loved us just like you love our children. Oh, Lord, I pray that the gospel would fill this place. I give you thanks for the grace of your son, Jesus, for the welcome that he gives to us sinners. And Lord, we consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, Lord, that you would form us together as a gospel community where it's a safe place to be a sinner, learning to live loved by Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.